First Chronicles chapter 15, First Chronicles 15, we're continuing our study through the books of the Bible, and I think I'm going to finish this one today, and I'm trying to like bring myself back to try to get it done a little more concise, but I don't want to rush things, but I also don't want to get bogged down, I want to kind of give an overview here trying to give us a working understanding of the Bible, a working understanding of the books of the Bible and the topics and the ideas in it. And uh, in 1 Chronicles 15, what I did over here was um, I kind of wrote the key ideas down that we're going to touch on in those chapters. So I'm not going to do much writing on the board. That'll be there. But in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, we meet a character. We get introduced to a character that's pretty, you know, shows up in the book of Psalms a little bit. His name is Asaph. And uh, he was the song leader of David. And as we look at some things about Asaph, the big lesson to take away is our music, right? What should be our relationship to music? Uh, Because music is a big issue, right? You can insult somebody's mother before you can insult somebody's music these days. And I work with teenagers, and if you step on somebody's toes about their music, it's like you did something worse to insult their mother. And uh, look at verse chapter 15, look at verse 16 and 17. We'll get into why that is in a little bit. 16 and 17, the Bible says, chapter 15, verse 16 and 17, And David spake to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers with instruments of music, psalteries, and harps, and cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and of his brethren Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari, their brethren, Ethan, the son of Cushiah. So I want you to notice, David is getting ready to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And when he's bringing up the ark, David appoints certain Levites to sing for the Lord. There were certain people that had a little responsibility to try to lead the worship and, and kind of get everybody singing and praising God. And look at verse number 22, the same chapter. And Kaniah, or Kenaniah, chief of the Levites, was for song. He instructed about the song because he was skillful. Jump to verse 27. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, and all the Levites that bear the ark, and the singers, and Kenaniah, the master of the song with the singers. So I want you to notice, when David returned the ark, there was a song leader. (laughs) Now, I can't find necessarily a choir in the Bible, but if you have a choir, that's okay. We, you're the choir, the congregational singing. You're the choir, but there is Bible precedent for a song leader. And you see some things about him. 27 says this guy was the master of the song. He was the person in charge of the singing and the songs and the direction of it, right? So there's a biblical task there. It's not just, listen, you got to pray for your song leaders. It's not an easy thing to stand up first thing on Sunday morning and like get everybody to smile and praise God when they're tired and they're groggy. You know, their job is to really kind of warm your heart and get you ready for the preaching of the Word of God. That's what they're there for. And it's, it's not an easy task. It's not just a, a mechanical task. I did it for 11 years. And then sometimes it's tough. I mean, sometimes you're scary to look at. I'm sorry. It's just like, you know, you're just you're scary to look at. And it's a weird thing, right? I'm singing and I'm looking at you singing and we're singing together. Like it's not a natural thing. We don't usually bump into each other in the, in the Walmart and say like, you know, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Like it's just, but it's something that we do that God ordained to kind of just keep everything in order. And notice why this guy was the master of the song. Verse 22, the end of the verse, because he was skillful, right? 
He had some talent. He had some ability that he wanted to give to God. Listen, you might have a great heart. I love you. But if you can't carry a note in a bucket, you're probably not going to be the song leader. Not insulting you, but you got to kind of be able to at least sing a little bit to be a song leader. And we get so weird about talent sometimes. We're so afraid of talent or we get too into talent. Neither one is a good thing or a bad thing. Just use it for the Lord. Clearly, Kenaniah wanted to use this for God and, and God let him do something with it. So if you can carry a note in a bucket or you can play an instrument, God gave you that ability. Don't shun it and don't use it on the world. Use it for the Lord because he gave it to you so you could do something for him. Obviously, Kenaniah was doing that. Now look at chapter 16. Sometimes we're weird. Sometimes when someone's talented, we're like, they must be in the flesh. No, maybe this God gave them a good voice. We should not be afraid of that. You know, you got to keep that in check because you could fill up with pride, but both sides are unbiblical. Like there's a side that shuns it like, oh, the, mm, and there's a side that gets puffed up right in the middle, right? Just use it for God. If you got it, use it for God. If you don't have it, ask God to give it to you. All right, chapter 16, look at verse four. All right, now, once the ark is returned, it looks like David appoints Asaph to lead the worship. Here's why I say that. So they've got the ark back, verse 1, and it says in verse 4, And he appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel, Asaph the chief, right? So Asaph looks like he's going to be in charge of the worship that David's kind of setting up here. And Asaph if you're taking notes. Asaph, you might recognize him from the book of Psalms. Asaph wrote 12 Psalms in the book of Psalms. He wrote Psalm 50, and he wrote Psalm 73 to 83. He wrote a good chunk of Psalms, especially those Psalms 73 to 83. Asaph wrote some really real Psalms. If you're ever going through something and you're discouraged, Asaph wrote some really real psalms like 73 77 he's a guy that was jaded he saw the world was you know unjust he gets discouraged by it and he had to get his heart right reading the psalms of asaph are really good uh and um go to chapter 16 look at verse 7 then on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. So David writes Psalm 105. There weren't numbers back then, but David writes a psalm. We find out this is Psalm 105, and he delivers it to Asaph to sing it because the psalms in your Bible were meant to be sung. This was the songbook, right? The book of Psalms was the songbook. And we read in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So the psalms were meant to be sung. Now, we're not going to sing them right now, but that's what they were originally done for. Now, go to chapter 25. Let me show you something else about music here. This book is supposed to make your heart sing. This book is supposed to put a song in your heart. Some of this is definitely, if you read the book of Psalms, there is musical signatures in there. There are selahs or rests, like a score of music in, in the book of Psalms. But the book of Psalms is supposed to make you, was supposed to be sung. But the heart of your Bible is supposed to make you sing. It's supposed to put a song in your heart. Now, First Chronicles 25, watch this, verse 1. <clears throat> Very interesting wording here. Moreover, 
David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, with psalteries, and with cymbals. And the number of the workmen according to their service was of the sons of Asaph, Zachar, and Joseph, and Nethaniah, and Asrelah, the sons of Asaph, under the hands of Asaph, which prophesied according to the order of the king. Of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah, and Zeri, and Jeshahiah, and Hashabiah, God bless you, and Mathaiah, six under the hands of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Now, to prophesy is when you would bring forth a message, right? You would give some kind of prediction or some kind of pronouncement from God. This is saying that they're prophesying with an instrument. Connection? Your music always has a message. Music always has a message. It's always bringing something forth. You think, oh, it's just the radio, it's just my Spotify, it's just this. Music always has a message, a good message and a bad message. This music, he's saying, these instruments were prophesying. They were preaching. They were declaring things. Um, i got to challenge you a little bit. What message do your songs prophesy? The stuff you listen to on your playlist, what type of, what type of message is that bringing forth? Am I stepping on any toes yet? Because music is, always has a message. Music is not neutral. It's not just like this thing that floats in the ether, and on Sunday I do some Christian music, and then I go to my other music. No, music has a message. It always has a message. It could be a good message. It could be a bad message, but there's a message. Go to Second Chronicles 29. Let me show you this. That makes sense? All right, all right, stay with me now. Going somewhere. 2 Chronicles 29. Let me show you something else they said about Asaph. Look at this interesting uh, designation about Asaph. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. Asaph was the song leader, but in this verse, he's called a prophet. A seer was the old archaic word for the prophet. Why? Because Asaph built Bible doctrine into his songs. He wrote psalms, right? And godly music should be and complement preaching. Your preaching should be biblical and your music should be biblical, especially in church, right? Think about David. David was the man after God's own heart. David loved the Word of God. What was David? The sweet psalmist of Israel. He's writing the Psalms. He's also the guy that's in love with the Bible. And he's the one writing the Psalms because your songs, and that's why we sing the songs that we sing, are steeped and saturated with doctrine. Bible doctrine. Not, you know... And I'm not saying it's an evil song, but Jesus, take the wheel, take it from my hands. You know, that's a nice thought. It makes me scared that you're going to go off the cliff and your hands are up in the air. But things like, are you washed in the blood? Things like, uh, will Jesus find us? When Jesus comes, will he find us watching? I mean, there is more doctrine in some of the songs we sing than most of the pulpits in America today. And that's a crying shame. Right? This shouldn't, that shouldn't be. These things not, ought not to be. And look, if you know anything about church history, when the churches got rid of the Word of God, 
godly music was not too far behind it. There's a reason why all these contemporary apostate churches all have the same sound. It's a smoke machine. It's a praise team. It's probably a lady up there rocking and rolling and everybody's swaying and feeling some kind of vibe. And then somebody gets up there and with their cracker jacks shares something about the Bible that's really not about the Bible, some pseudo-psychology kind of self-help mumbo-jumbo they throw out there. The two are like in a symbiotic relationship. Right? There is a symbiotic relationship between the pure word and pure worship. Something happens when you get rid of this Bible, it seems like the wrong kind of music comes into the church. Or vice versa. I mean, if you want to destroy a church, I'll give you a hint. I'm going to let you know. I'll tell you in advance. Here's how you sink a church. Get rid of the King James Bible. Take your notes, Aaron. Get rid of the King James Bible and get rid of the old hymns. That's easy. And one or the other. You can get rid of the Bible first, and then the hymns will follow, or you want to reach more people, so you get rid of the old hymns, and pretty soon the Bible goes out the window. I mean, it's, it's, I mean we've seen it. It's not like I'm talking like out of the top of my hat here. We've seen how I know of a good church not far from here that they changed the music. And then it was King James Church. Some of us went to camps with this church. They changed the music. They got rocking and rolling and swaying and j- jiving and bumping and grinding and that kind of different vibe. You know what happened right after that? Then after that, the Bible was gone. Now the place is closing their doors because God wrote Ichabod across it. I'm not saying everybody with the wrong kind of music is some of them have got huge buildings and huge this and huge that. But what does God think? Right? Is it honoring God? Or is it just making you feel good? Right? Um, and I know it's not fun to say, but i got to say it, because Lucifer was the song leader of heaven. And Lucifer is very interested in music. Go to Isaiah chapter 14. Let me show you some things about Lucifer. Like I said, music, man. It's like you insult somebody's music, they'll fight you for it. I mean, you see, yes, sir. Say the Macaulay Rescue Mission. Yeah. The downfall of that mission was taking scripture yep. off the walls and it took the music away. They yeah. Music. Amen. Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good, I wasn't thinking, I was thinking of something else. But we used to go to a rescue mission. You went there. We all went there. The Macaulay Mission, one of the oldest missions, I think, in New York City. We went there for years and years and years. And I think Joe Silvestri and Pat Dean started that ministry years and years and years ago. And they had King James verses on the walls, but they did this huge reno, did this huge upgrade, probably started taking money from the state. And we went back in there, did our own thing. You know, they got rid of the scripture. They made the place look like a nightclub. And uh, pretty soon the songs were not good. And then the preaching wasn't good. In a few months, it was like, you're not good. And they kicked us out. After maybe 20 or 30 years of going there on our own dime, on our own time, not that we need anything or deserve anything, but something changed. The place went sideways. Um, Look at Isaiah 14. Look at verse 11. This is talking about Lucifer. Because you see verse 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Let me show you some things about old Splitfoot here. Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. A vial was a type of violin with six, six strings. Ever study words that end in X? Right? Six strings that you'd play with a bow, right? And it says Lucifer got his own vials. He's got his own stringed instruments. He makes his own pomp. He makes his own little procession. He's a music man. 
He's the Pied Piper. He'll lead you right off a cliff with music. You get people to do a lot of things with music. You can control people with music. That sound can just change the vibe of a room, change the tone of a church, change the way you feel, change the way you think, change the way you might act. Where's that come from? How is that possible? The devil's a musician. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. I'll just show you one more and then I'll stop making you uncomfortable. Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, look at verse 13. Ezekiel 28, verse 13. Speaking about Lucifer again, we'll just jump in here. Thou hast been in Eden. Obviously, that wasn't you or me. Thou hast been in Eden. Obviously, that's not the king of Tyrus. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. Beautiful creature, this cherubim, Lucifer was. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. Watch it. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. So it looks like the devil has pipes and tabrets, those are like small drums, actually built into his body. And it seems like he might have led some kind of worship of the heavenly host. And I guess he got a little full of himself and started thinking, huh, maybe they should be worshiping me because I'm doing such a great job over here. And God saw something in his heart and we know the story. But don't ever forget why music is so powerful. God loves music. God creates to music. Job says, where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth, when all the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? God likes to work to music. He says in Zephaniah, he'll rejoice over his people with singing. So what's the great counterfeiter going to do? He's going to imitate. He wants to counterfeit and imitate and corrupt and just debase something God says is beautiful. Music is beautiful. It's powerful. It could do wonderful things. It could lift your spirit. It could also turn you into an animal bumping like you're a gorilla in the forest somewhere. Just get the right type of beat and the right type of sound and people just turn into some something else. And uh, that's a strange thing, man. I, when I see how intimately connected, I didn't know I was going to be on this for this long. And when I see how intimately connected the devil is to music, listen, you got to wake up. You got to splash some spiritual water on your face and not be suckered and like understand why things are the way they are. All right. So that's, that's, that's one. Go to chapter 17 of First Chronicles. That was a little bit about music. And, you know, listen, Lord willing, we won't change. If we do change, then God will probably just kick us out or shut the doors or something like that, but we've got to hold on to the old book and we've got to hold on to the old songs. And look, if it doesn't always move your hips, good. It's supposed to move your heart, right? It's supposed to move your heart. I don't know how you sing, it is well with my soul and not have your heart move. It doesn't make me want to rock. It doesn't make me tap my foot. It doesn't make me want to throw my hands up and sway and bump and, you know, move around and kind of do anything like that. But it does make me want to weep. It does make me want to pray. It does make me want to call out to God. It makes me want to draw nigh to Him. And that's the mark of a good song. If it moves your hips more than it moves your heart, something's wrong with it. And uh, because the Bible says making melody. Melody is that sound right? Not percussion, not beat, 
not even harmony, melody. And I like harmony, right? I like singing some, you hear me sometimes. I like to slip in a little harmony. But you know what? God's talking about melody. Melody is that tune, that sound, that's just you reaching out to God. All right, let's go ahead. Chapter 17. Chapter 17 is about David's hard attitude on building God's house. What is the lesson? It's our attitude towards possessions. You want to see in chapter 17, verse 1? We'll do some of these. going to be really quick. 17.1. Now it came to pass, as David sat in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. David is stepping back, and David looks at everything he has versus everything God has. And he says, wait a second, this ain't right. I got it better than God. (laughs) I got it better than the ark. I got a nicer house than the ark. You know what the lesson is? Don't give to yourself more than you give to God. That's That's what David took away there. I heard an old preacher say one time, Ruckman said this years ago, and it bothered me so much. He said, the average Christian spends more money on dog food than missions. And that bothers me because I bet if I added up probably all the dog food I bought every year, it probably is more than I gave to missions. And that should be shame on me. But the lesson is, look at yourself. And, you know, I'm not saying you've got to be a pauper or give everything away, but don't give more to yourself than you give to God. That's what David said there. He goes, wait a second, something's out of order here. God's sitting in a tent and I'm sitting in his palace. I need to give a little more to God here. And that's the big takeaway. What should our attitude toward possessions be? Chapter 18. To 20. Chapter 18 to 20 is about David's great victories to subdue the nations and occupy the land. So David takes over, he brings the ark back, and he starts putting people down, starts gaining land for God, gaining land for Israel, putting the other nations you know, at bay and kind of subduing them so they could be at rest. And what does that tell us? It should be about our occupation. We're supposed to be occupying, right? Amen. Not just taking up space occupying. Luke chapter 19, verse 13, Jesus in this parable commands his servants, occupy till I come. Don't take up space, occupy. Not just be occupied, but occupy. You want a definition of occupy? To occupy is to take possession, to capture, to seize, to get busy. You and I are supposed to be getting busy for the Lord, doing something for the Lord, redeeming the time because the days are evil, gaining ground. Hey, if the devil's got your computer, get that computer back for God. If the devil's got your playlist on your phone, get that playlist back for God. If the devil's got your time, get some of that time back for God. If the devil's got your talent, you should be trying to possess that talent for God and gain ground. Put some of those enemies down and gain ground. Don't just recede into this little capsule called Sunday morning and maybe Thursday night. That's not what God wants. God says you should be increasing. You should be growing. You should be expanding your horizons. That's what David did. Go to uh, uh, 1 Chronicles 18. Look at verse 6. I want to challenge you. Are you occupying for the Lord or just taking up space, Christian? A lot of Christians are taking up space. And we're lucky if we get them to take up space. God says, I don't want you to just take up space and sit on a pew. I want you to occupy. I want you to get busy. I want you to do something with what I've given you. Uh, 1 Chronicles 18.6, look at this. Then David put garrisons in Syria, Damascus, 
and the Syrians became David's servants and brought gifts. Look what happens. Thus the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. Look at verse number 13. And he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. Thus the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. David is expanding, and David is subduing his enemies, and David's bringing rest to his kingdom, and David's occupying the land. And you know what God is doing for him? God's preserving him. God's taking care of him. God's directing him. Because when you get busy for the Lord, guess what? The Lord gets busy for you. When you take a step towards God, guess what? He takes a step towards you. What happens if you take 10 steps towards God? I think he takes 10 steps towards you. But the Christian or the believer, I should say, because you're not much of a Christian if you're not following. But the believer that doesn't really want anything to do with God, you think, I mean, how much is God chasing that person? You're not really interested? All right, I'll leave you be. I'll be here when you need me, I'm sure. But the, the believer that is hungry, the believer that's going after him, the believer that's trying to get back some ground, if you were a father, wouldn't you be excited about a son like that? Amen. If you were a, a general, wouldn't you be excited by a, an infantryman like that? Somebody that's just so eager and zealous to try to occupy and do, what do you want, boss? What do you want, sir? What else could I do? What else could I do, sir? I mean, I, I'm a teacher. Can, you, what, can I do something else? Can I work on this other project? It's like it, it, it warms your heart. And God's saying, God's stepping in. David's going out for God. And God's like, you know what? I'll go out for you, David. I'll take care of you. Nothing you give to God is ever wasted. No time you give to Him, no talent you give to Him will ever be in vain. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that He's able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. Even if you don't see it down here, man, when the judgment seat of Christ comes, baby, it's going to be payday someday. God's going to be like, you thought I forgot? You thought I wasn't watching? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. It is going to be worth it all in just a little while. Just just hang on a little while. Just hang on a little while. Uh, Look at chapter 20. You want to know what happens when you don't occupy? You remember this from 2 Samuel. Uh, 20, 20 verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time that the kings go out to battle, Joab led forth the power of the army and wasted the country of the children of Ammon and came and besieged Ramah. But David tarried at Jerusalem. And when David stopped getting busy for the Lord, he got himself in trouble, right? Right? <laughs> Idle hands are the devil's plaything. Now you notice that Chronicles does not have the mention of the sin of Bathsheba. We talked about that last week. It kind of just passes right over that because it's a different perspective. So let's go to chapter 21. Chapter 21. This is when David numbers Israel. You see, what's the lesson? Our behind-the-scenes adversary, as we learn about chapter 21. Let Let me explain here. Let's look at 21, verse 1. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So after all of David's victories, he's putting this guy down, he's putting the Edomites down, he's putting the Syrians down, he's subduing these people, he's putting these garrisons out there, and he's expanding the territories of Israel and really subduing his enemies. After all those victories, what happens? David provokes, Satan provokes David and gets him to sin against the Lord. Paying attention, lesson, be extra careful after a victory. Be extra careful after a victory because when the enemy sees you get a victory, that's when he wants to knock you down. 
when you come home from the great ministry day, you come home from the great church service, you come home from maybe uh, witnessing to that person at work, be very, very, I don't want you looking over your shoulder all the time and being like spooked out with the heebie-jeebies, but just when God's giving you ground and you're taking ground back, don't think the enemy is just going to oh, that's great for you, good for you, as long as that works for you. No, he's going to try to resist you and oppose you and get you to do something stupid like David here. Uh, Be circumspect on the mountaintop because the valley isn't far away. The higher you are, the easier it is to fall and the greater the fall will be. Uh, Go to 2 Samuel 24.1. This is the companion verse here. 2 Samuel 24.1. <clears throat> All right. Now, First Chronicles said da- Satan provoked him. Second Samuel twenty four says, verse one, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, "Go, number Israel and Judah." So Second Samuel. It kind of looks like a contradiction, but no. Satan is working behind the scenes, man. Satan works behind the scenes to provoke you to anger the Lord. Till you start wanting to do something, God said, don't do it, don't do it. And you keep wanting it, God says, all right, do it. And then you get judged for it. Now, you say, why did God get angry with David for numbering the children of Israel? Go to Exodus chapter 30. I'll show you. Go to Exodus chapter 30. Look at this. Do you know the only person that was supposed to command the people to be numbered was God? If somebody was going to call a census, it was supposed to be God. Because you know who the Israelites were? They were God's people. They weren't David's people. They were God's people. Exodus 30 verse 12 says this, and the, verse 11, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after the number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them. Oh, David broke that one. David took it upon himself. David's looking at this great kingdom, and he says, Let me number my kingdom. And God didn't tell him to do that. He took that upon himself because David started getting a little puffed up with pride, wanted to see how big his kingdom was, forgot it was God's kingdom. God says, and and when you do that, David, you're supposed to like have them bring an offering. They didn't do that either. He said, you better have them bring the offering so no plague breaks out among them. Remember what happens when David has the number of the children of Israel? A plague, a pestilence breaks out among them because David wasn't doing it God's way. And uh, Israel belong to God. And David started taking a little bit of ownership there. I think David got tempted with his pride. He disobeyed God and he angered the Lord. Be careful. Everything you have is God's. Everything good that was given to you is God's. Don't start counting it. Don't start tabbing it up. Don't start bringing all that stuff into your storehouse and saying, oh, I'm going to build some bigger barns. God's like, wait one second. Whose are those things which thou hast provided? It's like Hezekiah showing, you know, the king of Babylon, everything in his house. And God was like, wait a second. What did you show him? <laughs> and David starts numbering and saying, look at my kingdom. Look at my kingdom. And Satan's blowing on that fire. He's He's fanning that little flame, and pretty soon he's angering the Lord, and God says, it's time to judge him. And guess what, David? I'm going to judge those people that you thought were yours. You think they're yours? 
And David, then David gets humbled. And he says, these sheep, Lord, these sheep, what did they do? And David remembers the mind of a servant again, the mind of a shepherd. He got a little puffed up with pride, I think, there. Go back to First Chronicles 21. Be very careful on the mountaintop. Be very careful of your pride. First Chronicles 21. So we know what happens. The, the plague goes out. The pestilence goes out, I should say. And um, they're going to build, they're gonna, he's going to buy this threshing floor. Uh, 21, 21. And, David, and as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee. And let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. So David goes to buy the threshing floor from Ornan the Jebusite, and Ornan's like, oh, you're King David. Just take it. It's yours. Just, it's here. Look what David does at verse 24. And King David said to Ornan, Nay, no, but I will verily buy it for the full Price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings. Next two words, without cost. David pays the full price because real devotion is always going to cost you something. If it doesn't cost you something, it's not a sacrifice. If it doesn't cost you something, it's not meaningful, right? It's got to cost you something. There's got to be some sacrifice involved. David said, I can't take this for free. I've got to pay for this. And the lesson is real devotion is going to cost you something. I've mentioned this gentleman before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor during the Second World War in Germany under Hitler's regime. And he wrote a book that Pastor Dean used to reference called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, he warns against something. You know what he warns against? He warns against cheap grace. Cheap grace. And here's what he writes. Listen to this. It's very convicting. He says, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for those for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. Ye were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace, because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Wow. He's saying, 
if it cost God the blood of His Son to wash your dirty sins away, how could it be cheap to you? Grace teaches my heart to fear. Amazing grace that taught my heart to fear. Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly and righteously in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. You know what grace is? If we ever got a hold of the fact that God put His Son on a cross, Amen. that we wouldn't have to go to hell, but we deserve to go, Merry Christmas, but that's where we deserve to go. If that ever gripped our soul, you know what? We wouldn't treat this stuff so lightly. Doesn't mean we're working for our salvation, but we're not just trotting it underfoot. We're not so casually missing church, so casually throwing our Bible aside, so casually plunging into sin. We tread a lot more soberly, a lot more righteously when we realize the wrath of God was revealed from heaven when He punished His Son for your sins. You should look at the cross sometimes. I don't mean the thing hanging in your room or around your neck or at your old church. I mean, what really happened on that cross? The beating, the bruising, the horror, the hordes of hell, the flames he faced when he made his soul an offering for sin, the separation, becoming the curse, becoming the devil himself, becoming the place of the wicked and taking all that wrath upon him. If you really ever got a grip of that, Go visit a burn unit. Go visit a burn ward and see the people lying there in pain and anguish and realize your fate was to burn not just for a few years, but forever. And realize the Son of God made His soul an offering for sin. You know that you do? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." But Christians want everything free. Salvation was free. Isn't everything else free? Yeah, salvation was free, but that's a, it was at a price. And it's that price that should make you value it. Listen, if a vase cost you five bucks at Walmart, you don't value it. But if that vase was priceless and cost maybe $200,000, you'd put that thing behind glass, you'd handle it with such care. Your salvation is free to you, but it cost the death of God's Son. How can we make it cheap? It was costly. And David gives it that lesson. Chapter 22. Moving right along here. All right. 22 to 27 is David making preparation to build the temple. And that tells us some things about our ministry, our attitude towards our ministry. Let's look at 22. Let's read just verses 1 to 5. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel, and he set masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gates, and for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. Also, cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians, and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Please notice, David did the work so someone else could get the glory. That is a great philosophy.
for ministry. Do the work, and somebody else might be able to enjoy it. Do the work, prepare, so someone else might build and enjoy the fruits of your labor. That would be a sign of true humility. That would be the true heart of a minister. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. You enjoy the fruits of His labor. That's real ministry. And if you're going to minister in the church house, or wherever you're going to minister among the brethren, guess what? You've got to be willing, like David, to prepare abundantly and put the work in, even if it's not for you to enjoy. Can I speak to the parents? Parents, will you prepare your children to build something better for God? My children, I want to be greater Christians than I ever could be. And they're they're at a much better start. I came in with 20 years of garbage and, right, brother, broken programmings and dreck and nonsense, and I'm just trying every day to bat that stuff away. But some of these guys that are pure as the driven snow, that kind of raised in the, you know what? You should be slaving and laboring and trying to get the Word of God in there and be a good example. Why? So they can go 10 steps further than you did as a believer. David said, man, I fought, I got bloody hands, but Solomon, you're going to go further than me, son. You're going to build the temple that God's going to inhabit. And David had no problem with it. He wasn't proud. He wasn't frustrated. He wasn't bitter. Hey, how about older Christians? Can I speak to you too? Are you willing to work so a younger saint can get the glory? Right? So a younger guy might become a 10 times better preacher, 10 times better pastor, 10 times better minister than you ever were. That should be the goal, to have the next generation exceed you. Not be looking up to you like, I'll never get to where you are. Now, I look up to Mel Sabaka and Mike Veach and Pat Dean and Peter Ruckman and and Bob Alexander and a lot of these great guys that have gone before me. But you know what? I'm not just going to sit around all day and idolize them. If they were here right now, they'd say, I want you to go further than I went. I want you to know the Bible better than I did. I want you to build something more than I could. That's the heart of a minister, right? Pour your life into someone else so they could do something for God. And finally, and we'll park on this for a little bit, uh, 28 to 29, is David's charge to Solomon. It's his charge to Solomon about building the house. And it talks to us about our maturity. I want you to notice here, we're going to make four stops in here. I want you to notice, please, the progression in this charge to becoming a man after God's heart like David, right? Let's start with first understanding what a real relationship with God is. That's where he starts this charge, with a relationship with God. He says, the first thing you've got to understand, son, is you've got to understand a real relationship with God. Look at verse 9, 28, 9. He says, now therefore, uh, no, 9, and thou Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father. And serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off. 
Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. If you're going to become a man after God's own heart like David, if you're going to build a temple like David was preparing Solomon, this is for your children, this is for your younger Christians, this is the whole thing here. This is the maturing process. You've got to start, number one, with understanding what a real relationship with God is. Defining the terms and understanding. Look at some of the things he says in verse 9. He says first, you've got to know God yourself. Know therefore the God of thy father. Not just know about the God of your father. Don't just know about the God of Mel Sabaka. Don't just know about the God of Mike Veach or Pat Dean. Know the God of Mel Sabaka. Know the God of Mike Veach. Know the God of Pat Dean. That's what we're supposed to do. Get to know their God yourself. That's where you start. Notice the rest of the verse. It keeps going on. It says, And serve him with a perfect heart. He wants you to know, hey, your relationship is all about the heart. He wants your heart. God wants all of your heart, a perfect, complete heart. Don't you want all of the heart of your children? Don't you want all of the heart of your spouse? Don't you want all of the heart of your friends? I mean, how can you have a real relationship with someone if they're only giving you half their heart? Right, they're there in the morning and they're, okay. And then on Friday they're loving somebody else. And on Saturday they're loving you again. And on Sunday they're loving somebody else. You can't have a relationship like that. Amen. He's saying you want to have a real relationship with God, you got to know Him and you got to give Him all your heart. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about being related to God. That's by faith, a moment Amen. when you trust Christ. Amen. I'm talking about building a relationship with God. You've got to know Him, and you've got to serve Him with a complete heart. Oh, so many, I joke around, so many Christians do that two-step, man. With God a little while, when Grandma's in the hospital or something's bad, I'm here. But as soon as it's good, I'm back over here. How is that a relationship? You're a two-face. You're a Benedict Arnold. You're a backstabber. You're a, you're a fraud, right? doesn't mean you've got to be on the mission field, but God wants your heart. I think, he's, I think he's justified to want your heart. And then he says, and with a willing mind. You know, God accepts a willing mind. He wants your willingness. That's all he wants, you know that? He just wants willingness. The Bible says if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath and not that he hath not. You're sitting here right now, you know what? I like to serve God with a talent. I don't know how I want to do it. God says, I just want to see your willingness. I'll take care of the rest. I want to see if you're willing. Amen. You want a relationship with God? He says you got to know Him. you got to be willing to give Him all your heart. And you got to be willing to serve Him. That's all. Just be willing. Well, what about this? Don't worry about the what about this. Just are you willing? Do you want a relationship with Him? It's all about that. Look what he says then in verse number 9, the rest of the verse. He says, For the Lord searcheth, right? For the Lord searcheth all the hearts and understandeth all the imaginations. The Lord searches your heart and understands your thoughts. He says, that's why you've got to give him your heart and give him your willing mind, because that's what God's looking at. Not your education, not your background, not your past faults, not your past screw-ups. He's saying, you're sitting here right now, maybe there's 20 or 30 of us a year, or somebody watching home, so God says, right now, he's putting a finger right at you right now, saying, right now, forget yesterday, right now. Do you want to have a relationship with me? I'm here, and he's watching, he's searching hearts and minds. Who has got a heart that's perfect towards me? Who wants me? Anybody want me? God's saying, anybody want me? And if you want him, God's like, I want to have that relationship with you. 
Verse 9, the end of verse 9. If thou seek him, the state of your relationship is going to depend on the quality of your seeking him. If you don't seek him, you don't have much of a relationship. If you do seek him, he'll be found of you. But if you don't want anything to do with him, don't talk about your, I just don't feel anything when I go to church. I don't feel anything when I read the Bible. You don't have any relationship with God. You open it up once in a blue moon. It's like a lunar cycle. Once every 30 days, you open it up to see if there's something in there for you. God says, you want to have a relationship, you've got to be willing to seek me. If you seek me, you'll find me. But if you don't seek me, I'm not going to be found of you because you're not looking for me. I'm being very plain, but God says, this is how you set up a relationship. Right? He wants to have a relationship. Look at verse 10. Then he says, build. You see that? He spends all of verse 9 talking about the relationship, and then he says build. Because you're not building anything for God if you have no relationship. If you don't have a foundation of a relationship with God where you want Him, you're seeking Him, you want to give Him your heart, you have a willing mind, and all the things we just read about, forget about building something. How can you build? You have no foundation. The foundation is your relationship. That's number one. If you want to do something for God and mature, like David is trying to get Solomon to mature, you got to start with the relationship. And then, number two, all right, let's get to number two. Look at uh, verse number 19. First, you get the relationship, and then, I said, you build. Then you build. See? Verse number 19. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. And David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work of the service of the, for the service of the house of the Lord. Listen, once you've established a relationship with God, then you can start building something for God. And you say, what am I supposed to build? Look at verse 19. God will tell you how to build your relationship with Him. How's He going to tell me? Just break the verse down. The Lord made me understand. You're not going to understand it. It's not your thoughts. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. God's going to have to give you some understanding because a relationship with God is something brand new. We've never had that before. This is supernatural. You're going to have to depend on God's understanding, not your understanding. He says, you want to build something? You need my understanding. Where do I get it? The next three words. Two words. In writing. In the Bible. You want to understand how to build your relationship with God and build something for God? Get that relationship established and then seek the writing and God will make you understand. How? By His hand upon me. His Holy Spirit's going to work in your life. You seek understanding and get into the writing. You know what's going to happen? He's going to put His hand upon you. And you could tell the Christians that have God's hand on them and those that don't. They're usually the ones that are in the book. They're usually the ones that are serving. They're the ones that are coming to church. They're the ones that are praying. God puts their hand on them and they start to grow. They start to build. They start to become something for God. And then He says, even all the works of the pattern. See what the goal is? You get the pattern. Once you get the pattern, then you get the whole picture. Once you start to see the patterns of the Bible, you start to see, oh, this is how God works. This is how God moves. You get the pattern, you get the Bible. You get the Bible, you start building. But you've got to understand the patterns. You've got to understand how God works, how He moves. Number 20, you see verse 20, you know what you need? 
You need courage. You need courage to do what God's telling you to do. God says it's there in the writing. You could build, but you've got to have enough guts to trust God and step out by faith and do what God is telling you to do if you want to build, if you want to see something grow out of your life. And in verse 21, he says, God wants you to build until you, at the end of 20, I'm sorry, until you finish the work. You can't build anything if you don't finish it. To really build something, you got to finish. You got to continue. You got to keep on keeping on, man. Mighty men around us falling. All right, everybody's dropping out. I don't want to be a dropout. Amen. I don't want to be a has-been. I don't want to be a used-to-be. I want the trumpet to sound. I want to still be going as best I can. Amen. And I'm not going as good as I should, but I want to just at least keep going. I don't want to quit. Amen. That's how you build. Third thing, you get that relationship down. You find out how to build. And then number three, you start to get some perspective about your building. That comes with some maturity. Look at chapter 29. Look at verse 1. You want to see the right perspective you got to get about your relationship? Look at 29, verse 1. Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great. For the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God, the gold, for things to be made of gold, and the silver, for things of silver, and the brass, for things of brass, and the iron, for things of iron, and wood, for things of wood, onyx stones, and stones to be set, glistering stones, and of diverse colors, and all manner of precious stones, and marble stones in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection, hello Colossians 3, to the house of my God, I have my own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God, over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house. You want to see David's perspective there? Number one, he says, the palace is not for man. You see the perspective you got to get? This building, this relationship, this temple that you're supposed to become for God, that you are, but you're supposed to be keeping for Him, guess what? It's not for you. It's not all about you. It's for the Lord. The palace is not for man, but for the Lord. This whole thing, it, it helped, man. You reap benefits, right? You get some serious dividends. You get some amazing benefits by living a godly life. But it isn't for you. The prime directive is not just so you live a holy, clean life and raise your kids and keep them out of the gutter. The thing for you is so that the God of heaven might be glorified in your vessel. And you might be pleasing to the one that called you out of darkness and unto his marvelous light. That's what it's all about. That's the perspective. When am I going to go to church? And why am I going to read your Bible? Because this life is not yours. It's his life. So you've got to give it back to him so it counts. Isn't that crazy? We think it's like ours. Mine, 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 mine. Like the little ants I joked about, right? Mine, mine is mine. It's not yours. It's his. He lends you that breath. He lends you that pulse. He lends you those days. He lends you that life. Why? So you can enjoy him. So he can see what you do with it. He lends it to you to see what you be like. Gobble it all up. Mine, mine, mine. Or, Lord, you gave me this. I'd like to give it back to you and do something with it for you. God says, this is fantastic. Let's build something. Number one. Then he says, number two, I have prepared with all my might. You got that perspective? You getting ready at all, folks? You're going to meet them. Amen. You getting ready? You're going to see them. 
As sure as you're looking at my ugly mug, you're going to stare into those eyes of fire one day. You're going to look him right in the eyes, and he's going to look right through your life and just in a moment expose what was right and what was wrong and what spirit you were of. It's going to do it in a heartbeat, I think. It's going to be wild. He says, I prepared with all my might. You making any effort? You making any effort? Some of you work harder to go on vacation than to do something for God. Some Christians work harder to chase sin than they ever did chase the Savior. That's a shame. David says, I am preparing with all my might. If this is the one sure thing that you know is going to happen, you don't know if you're ever going to make a million dollars, you don't know if you're ever going to move to Bahu Bahu, but you know what you know for sure is going to happen, you're going to look Jesus Christ in the eyes one day. If you know that's definitely going to happen, you could evade taxes, and if the rapture comes, you'll miss death. But the thing you won't miss is the judgment seat of Christ. Man, you should prepare abundantly. Make an effort. Get your heart right. Take it seriously. And the number three, he says, I've set my affection. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. David got his heart in the right direction, are you? See, this is all about perspective. Why are we doing this? What's it for? What should I be doing, right? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then, lastly, go to chapter 29. This is our last verses here. What's the end result of all this? If we, if I were to make a formula here, right? Relationship plus building plus perspective. You know what's going to equal? It's going to equal God's glory. If you establish a right relationship with God and understand what a relationship really is and start building according to the pattern of that book and maintain the right perspective of why you're building and what it's all about and how you should be preparing and where your heart should be, you know what happens in chapter 29, verses 10 to 14? We see the end result of spiritual maturity is God's glory. We're talking about building a temple, but what we're really talking about is you maturing as a Christian. That's the spiritual takeaway. And at the end of the day, if you've got the relationship down and you're building with the right perspective, you're going to glorify the God that saved you. Chapter, chapter 29, verse 10. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and Thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of Thee, and Thou reignest over all, and in Thine hand is power and might, and in Thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank Thee and praise Thy glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people? that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort. For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. The end result is God's glory. Verse 12, you ultimately learn it's all from God anyway. Even the riches, even the rewards of the judgment seat of Christ, God helped you get them. Christ working in you. Verse 13, God gets the glory. And verse 14 is the test. Will you give back to God what He's given you? David says, you know what? Who am I? I mean, 
You gave me all this stuff and you let me give it back to you. God, you're truly amazing. God, you're truly, truly gracious. You gave me everything. You gave me the Holy Spirit. You gave me the Bible. You gave me the church. You gave me salvation. You gave me Christ. You gave me all this stuff. And then you say, just yield some of it back to me and you'll bless me for it. You're great, God. That's what he's saying there, David. And that is the test of spirituality. When you get to the place where you just look at everything and go, God, this is all you. I should just give it back to you. That's what David gets at the end of his life. That's what he wanted his son to get. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to get. You know those folks in Revelation 4 who get those crowns? You know what they do with those crowns? They cast them at his feet. You know why? They got those crowns for doing something for God. But you know what they realized all along? It wasn't really us doing it. It was you doing it through us. We just yielded to you and you blessed us. God, this is honor and praise. All those things David said, it's all yours and we're going to cast them at his feet. When we get to that mature place, we realize, God, it's been all you, man. It's been all you. Glory to your name. Conclusion. One big idea in the book of 1 Chronicles. How do you build anything that glorifies God? Please, I have no, no verse to turn to. Just get this idea. Note the pattern of the book. The answer to that question of how do you build something that glorifies God comes from the way the book is laid out. Chronicles starts with genealogies and ends with the preparation of the temple. Follow me now. You need genealogies first. First, you got to find your place. Genealogies. For Israel, the genealogies picture the nation finding the priestly tribe so they can go into the Great Tribulation and do their sacrifices. But for the Christian, you know what you got to do? Those genealogies picture, you got to start by figuring out and realizing how you connect to Jesus Christ. You got to see how you are connected to Him, related to Him, you're in His line. When you realize that, then you may end up building the temple. But you got to start by knowing your place. As Pastor Mel would say, that you're the aristocracy of heaven, that you were bought with the blood, you're in the crimson line, you're not, you're not a schmo on the street, you're one of God's children, you're related to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you're in His book of life, your name is there, you got to start there. Realize your place in God's genealogy. You're related to the king. You're a son by faith in Jesus Christ. That's where the book starts, and it ends with preparation. Because once you find your place, you can find your purpose. If you don't know who you are, you don't know what you should be doing. But when you realize you're related to the king, you're a son of the king, you're building for the king, oh, now I know what I should do. And for Israel, once they find the priest, they can restore the nation. And for the Christian, once you find that relationship, once you find that connection to Jesus Christ and realize you're that son of the king, you can build your temple. Find your place, and you'll find your purpose. And then you could build something great for God. Forget your place. Lose your sonship. Lose who you are in Jesus Christ and you're not going to bring forth anything. But if you remember who you are and how you're related to Him, you're going to bring forth something magnificent. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you.